Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. Welcome to Mindspace. This is uh, Jeff Boucher. I'm here with Garrett Nickel. How are you, Mr. Nickel? Good. How are you doing, Jeff? Doing well, thanks. Uh, we have a, a interesting show today. We have D Danny Fingeroth is on, and he's a name, you know, I've never talked to Danny before, which is kind of strange, but uh, he's a name that I've known him for a really long time. I started reading his stuff when uh, I was in high school, um, and I'm really quite old, so that's pretty impressive. But he's a uh, He's one of those guys who's been a real voice in comics fandom and, and for people that care about comics history, the American comic book and superheroes and such. He's one of the, the one of the scholars that uh, has produced a lot of material about that. And uh, he had a, he had a really long collaboration friendship and just sort of being in the orbit of Stan Lee. And that has led to a book called a Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee, and that's from St. Martin's Press, and that came out last year, uh, but I just got around to finishing it, just because, you know, there's many things going on in the world, and uh, it, it uh, made me want to reach out to Danny and have him on the show and talk a little bit about Stan the Man, Stan Lee, the most, uh, the most famous name produced by the comic book world, who is in a character. Yeah, I feel like there's not really anyone uh, along the DC vein of things that quite like match up to Stanley, even yeah, just the name yeah, itself. He's like you know immediately who it is, and immediately what it's, they're talking about, and it basically is just a first name. That's really. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stanley Lieber, uh, shortened to Stan Lee. Uh, it's true. Marvel. Uh, he became a central figure at Marvel. There was one point, um, you know, in the early '60s or late '50s, where uh, he was the only employee of Marvel. Like it, it was down to one employee, and it was him. And uh, you know, you think about now what Marvel represents in popular culture. Um, it was crickets at that point. Uh, and, uh, you know, Stan, through the uh, force of will and his personality and just his naturally buoyant spirit and his relentless uh, drive, I've never met anybody that had more, um, more motivation or, or sense of wonder than Stan Lee. And I think that's what people really respond to when they, when they think about Stan. So... But uh, we're going to talk about that with Danny, and we're going to talk about uh, a little bit about Stan's career and his rivalry with Jack Kirby, and a little bit about the legacy that he has, and uh, uh, it should be a lot of fun. All right, cool. Here's the interview with Danny Fingeroth. Welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for uh, having me. Yeah, and congratulations on this book. It's, um, uh, you know, Stan Lee... What a life! Uh, I mean, more, you know, I mean, one of those really distinctive lives. And in a lot of ways, Stan, he reminds me of people like, um, you know, Johnny Carson or Walter Cronkite or 
or Charles Schulz, one of these figures that became so such a signature figure, um, a Titan figure, and, and one that we won't really see again because of just the nature of the way um, media has changed and, and the way that the, the medium has changed. You know, I, I think uh, I think Carson and Cronkite are really uh, very relevant. Um, and, and, and it's interesting because you might be the first, you know, I had a chapter uh, in yeah. the book that I discarded, but that sort of was, was comparing Stan to Carson, not so much to Cronkite, although I get that, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and in the book, I compare him to Ed Sullivan. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if, if you know if anybody out there remembers Ed Sullivan, but but I think that I think Johnny Carson more so even than Steve Allen, who preceded him, you know, mm -hmm. or, or Jack Parr, who preceded him. Carson established a certain way of being uh, a man in 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 America, and a certain kind of hipness, but that wasn't related to the hippies who came, you know, in the late 60s and early 60s. It was a way, uh, looking back, a way for like a post, uh, for a post-war, World War II veteran, depression era raised, kind of middle-aged guy who was successful to look and carry himself and what was, what was um, okay for him to make jokes about and behavior, you know, I mean, Johnny smoked like a chimney, unfortunately. And, but I, I so, uh, you know, I sort of started making a case for that in a chapter and it got a little off track for what I uh, was trying to do with the book. But I, I, th I think there was a, a period which may still, we may still be on the tail end of where those, you know, those late night hosts really uh, had an effect on people. And I think, Car I think that you can see uh, a certain amount of, of Carson in stand. There's a couple of times when uh, Johnny and Ed McMahon uh, make appearances in early Marvel comics. In early comics? In early Marvel comics. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, you know, I can't remember them in Marvel. I remember, I, I do remember um, them popping up in Superman uh, action comics. Uh, like, they're, you know, uh, they had a late night, uh, sort of a corollary of uh, a counterpart of Johnny Carson. It wasn't, he wasn't named Johnny Carson. Well, you know that famous uh, Spider-Man 50 cover, Spider-Man No More with, um, oh, yeah. with, with Spider-Man walking away into the, you know, blazing sunset and, and then the splash page, not the splash page, a splash page inside the story has the suit in the, in the trash can. That's right. Uh, in that story, uh, a kid finds Spider-Man's costume in the trash can and brings it to the to the uh, to a TV station, mm -hmm. and it's NBC in New York apparently. Although they they never, they never they don't say it explicitly, but it's clearly two guys named Johnny and Ed, and they're talking about you know what does this mean that Spider-Man uh, threw away his costume? Yeah, it's fun stuff. I love the way that uh, you know one of the great things that. Uh, Stan did uh, along with uh, you know that amazing crew that was assembled in the you know the uh, late fifties and well more the early sixties at Marvel uh, is to to really steep it in New York and to put people's feet yeah. in in the story in New York and put the, the New York in the story and the story in New York uh, in a way that uh, uh, where heroes would overlap you would be reading like Thor and Hulk would jump by in the background for no apparent reason other than 
to just remind you that uh, New York was uh, had traffic even when it came to superheroes. Uh, well, no, New York has always had that mythic status. I mean, it's funny. I'm a born and raised and still live in New York person. And, you know, Stan and Jack and Stan and did, you know, what Mar Marvel did was they did a riff of taking that mythical New York uh, that everybody, you know, the same way they did it in the, in the movies, you know, especially the movies of the 30s and 40s, the Fred Astaire movies and the Humphrey Bogart movies. Mm -hmm. And they made it really explicit. And it must, the first issue or two of Fantastic Four, which were the first, you know, modern Marvel stories, did, they took place in some place called Central City. And then very soon, I think they, you know, I, I assume it was Stan or, you know, must have decided, you know, we put out all these comics in the 40s and 50s and they were all set in New York and we're using a lot of the same characters. I don't know if you can hear, I have some authentic New York uh, radiator banging in the background. So I know that. you added that. That's, okay. that's, that's, that's <laughs> much, but we'll take it. We'll keep it. But yeah, well, it, okay. it was, yeah, it, 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 I think Stan got that, that, well, if it works for the movies and if it works for our timely, you know, comics, which is what Marvel was called in the 40s, why, why not uh, be consistent with that? Yeah, and, and I, I love the, uh, you know, the Marvel comics of the 40s. Uh, you know, especially Submariner, I, I, I think uh, uh, that's just nuts. I mean, uh, the comic was nuts. I mean, like, uh, doesn't he throw people off the, the Statue of Liberty, like, the, you know, right off the bat? <laughs> Pretty uh, early. Yeah, I, he, at one point, uh, creates a tsunami that engulfs the entire island of Manhattan. Whoops. Maybe even the entire five boroughs. And, you know, there's some perfunctory caption about how luckily everybody was able to hide in the subways. Now, if you've ever been in the subways, <laughs> how safe do you think you'd be from a tsunami? Uh, so yeah, you figure the submariner must be responsible for at least a couple hundred thousand deaths. Yeah. That would make him, you know, uh, at least an anti-hero. <laughs> for sure, for sure. And, and, and those, those comics were so fascinating too. And you look at like the first issue of Captain America, Captain America comics, uh, Back then, you know, with uh, uh, Joe Simon, Jack Kirby, uh, has Captain America punching Hitler out. But yeah, I mean, yeah. people have to remember that was like five months before Pearl Harbor. I mean, we weren't that even was, at war. That was, that was actually close to a year before Pearl Harbor. Was it close to a year? Sorry. Yeah, well, well per, yeah. that comic came out December 1940, and Pearl Harbor was December 1941. Sure. So it was yeah. a full year. Oh no, it was. It was. Um, you know, it was, I guess, uh, maybe that same year, um, Chaplin's The Great Dictator came out. But, you know, Hollywood was very slowly coming around because they had a lot of markets in, in Germany and, and the rest of Europe that didn't want to alienate. Yeah, so for, for two, you know, young Jewish guys like uh, Simon and Kirby, to, you know, and Martin Goodman, you know, I mean, Stan was still the assistant then, so, you know, actually yeah. Stan... Stan came to work for them just after Captain America One went off to the printer. But for those guys to do that, you know, in a in an era where um, there was a lot of uh, overt uh, and covert anti-Semitism in this country, was was pretty bold. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, I think uh, if I remember right, Stan's first published work was a prose story in uh, maybe the fourth or fifth issue of Captain America. Third issue, yeah. Yeah. I was close. I was, I was close. I was even close. And, and, and it was also the first time he ever publicly used the name Stan Lee. Right. His name was Stan Lee Lieber. And, 
you know, he claimed that he was, and you know, sure it's true, was saving a lot of people in comics used uh, pen names, pseudonyms, mm -hmm. uh, because they were, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a great source of pride. Comics was kind of a schlocky, second-rate sure. uh, medium, um, and 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 um, and he was saving his name for the great American novel he would write because Stan Lee is a ridiculous name. <laughs> I mean, even yeah. even even it's a name a seventeen-year-old would take. Because a, a lot of people thought he was Asian, you know. Yeah, right. B, even to, you know, even today, when he when he certainly is is, is as fa more famous than he ever was because of the cameos and oh yeah. And so on. When I say to people, you know, who are not into it in a big way, I say, oh, I wrote a biography of Stan Lee. They go, Stan Lee who? I go, no, Stan <laughs> Lee. You know. That's <laughs> yeah, funny. Yeah, I know, Stan Lee who? You know. <laughs> I don't know. Third base. Uh, <laughs> it's all uh, yeah, it's 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 true. Um, he was saving his name for his uh, his proper work, uh, and of course, would become you know this titan figure, as we say. What about um, you know Hugh Hefner? There seems to be some uh, parallels there in a way. You know, I mean, Playboy uh, was a publishing revolution, and Stan uh, with what he did with Jack and uh, and with Steve Ditko and 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 the other folks at at Marvel was a, a publishing revolution of its own. Um, and, you know, Hefner, uh, he uh, started Playboy as sort of a collected, you know, magazine high school. It was almost a scrapbook of his interest and it, 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 it presented his sort of his uh, uh, prism, looking through his prism of life. And uh, there's some real parallels to that. And he, um, I got to know uh, Hefner and I got to know Stan and they 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 didn't remind me of each other, but they they did have I think uh, you know a certain uh, shared sort of generational you know just sort of sensibility, and uh, uh, it's really hard to separate them from their success. There's hard to think of two people in publishing who turned a corporate success more into an individual platform than Stanley and Hugh Hefner. Of course, and that, that's another great comparison too. Um, I think I think um, another uh, you know a significant difference between them was that um, Hefner owned Playboy and Stan never owned Marvel. You know, I mean that's big difference. Uh, I mean we can talk about that uh, later, but that's uh, that's obviously a significant difference. Stan was had worked there as editor from the time he was eighteen or nineteen, and the company was owned by uh, you know by a, a cousin by marriage, <clears throat> so he had some of the you know, his some of his behavior was like an autocratic, or 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 you know, or or just a sole owner. Mm -hmm. um, but he, but he wasn't. He, you know, he, yeah. you know, Stan did not own any more of those characters than you or me. You know, right. obviously right. he was well paid and well compensated. Um, Hefner, I think, was again sort of like Carson was mm -hmm. this role model whatever you think of Hefner for you know mm -hmm. for how to be a man in America in the 50s um you know he was, he was very suave and very well dressed and always surrounded by beautiful women and luxury and yeah. yet was also respected as an editor you know I mean when people say <clears throat> you know I bought Playboy for the articles right. I think a lot of people bought Playboy for the articles sure. Hefner 
was a you know, terrific publisher and editor, and he pub. I mean, it, it, you know, whatever Jules Pfeiffer and well, Ray Bradbury, the first issue, you know, uh, uh, Fahrenheit four fifty one, Fahrenheit four fifty one. Yeah, 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 I mean, it was uh, a lot the first of, issue, you know, of uh, Playboy was. Uh, I mean, uh, and, and and of course, the the ironic thing is that Hefner's first ambition was to be a cartoonist. Yeah, yeah. you know, uh, you know that, uh, and I think he realized. You know that that's why he would end up hiring guys like uh, Harvey Kurtzman, and and Will Elder, to do. You know, I mean, look, you you can one can argue whether Harvey and Will's talents are put to best use on Little Annie Fanny, but he certainly paid them more than anybody would. And yeah, there was always there was always a and 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 he paid. The comics and Playboy were not an afterthought for Hefner. He really paid a lot of attention to them. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, if you knew Hefner, yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know they became a signature of Playboy, and and uh, um, one of the kind of also interesting parallels I think is what Stan did at Marvel in the '60s, outside the panels uh, of the story, uh, were all the things that he did in his columns and in the letters pages, uh, and in a way, it was a very early form of social media. I mean, like talk about like sort of imprinting. Um, a message uh, incorporating the readers into it. I mean, uh, the no prize is one of the, the most genius things I've ever heard in my life is, you know, we get all these letters coming in uh, from kids around the country uh, about different things or pointing out mistakes. You called Spider-Man Superman by accident or, you know, what, what have you. And you send them back an empty, essentially a very nice empty envelope uh, called a no prize. I, I don't know if you're, you know, um, if, you're, if you're old enough to remember, but... Uh, uh -huh. Uh, when I was a kid at DC, what they would do is if you caught them in something like that, they would literally send you a, a piece of comic book art because it was worthless. There was no aftermarket for it then. So Stan's joke, I mean, so part of the no prize joke was, you know, was sending you no prize, um, you know, uh, for a couple of reasons. I think, you know, they, Marvel, at least Martin Goodman, somebody there figured out that they should hold on to the art, which they did as opposed to cutting it up or giving it away. And then of course, it's much easier, much less, you know, they Marvel had a much smaller staff. So mm -hmm. just to test somebody with putting a piece of art in an envelope. Uh, yeah, the no prize was great. Stan's whole, Stan, uh, and you can debate what his influence, you know, the obvious influence was the earlier EC comics. Mm -hmm. He would never give them the satisfaction of saying that, but he would say that he was influenced by these, uh, um, series of, of, of books he read as a kid that had letter columns with responses from the author. But yeah, that, that was a big part of the Marvel experience was starting with the ballyhooing letter and you know, a cover copy right. into you know, the, the, the narrative captions which often broke the fourth wall right. in the comics and spoke to you. And then again, in the very, there was always the bullpen bulletins, but even before the bullpen bulletins, every letter column had these incredibly lengthy responses from Stan, and they would just kind of meander into, you know, what people, you know, in the in the bullpen, which didn't exist, were doing. And he's, the, 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 there was no real Marvel bullpen, but he he brought you into it, and and gave you an entertainment experience that because it was so, you know, you can look at that those comics now and go, oh, they were a little overwritten, or you know, but you got like you know, a half hour to 40 minutes of an entertainment experience for 12 cents. That's, that's a pretty good value. 
you know, plus you got to hang out. And, and the thing he also, <clears throat> he didn't pretend that he was, you know, 10 years old or 50. He didn't pretend he was a peer. Right. He somehow was your parents' age. Right. But got, but understood what you were loving about these comics, you know, without, without pretending to be, you know, his actual real life as a suburban dad of, of a, you know, of a baby boomer kid served him well, you know. Yeah. And he was real comfortable with that. And, and there was, a, it is truly intuitive. Uh, it was intuitive for him. Anybody that met Stan, I mean, here's a guy that uh, loved people. He yeah. loved ideas and he maintained a sense of wonder until, until he passed away. I mean, the, the guy's curiosity and, and engagement with things uh, was really a sight to behold. And it was, it's fascinating to me to see how that sort of rehabilitated his image within comics fandom. Because Stan Lee, uh, you know, after Kirby's departure from Marvel um, and as uh, 70s went on, I mean, Stan wasn't, I mean, Judd Kirby was celebrated as being the sort of uh, either, uh, not, not overlooked certainly, but maybe, uh, the uh, not rightfully recognized uh, for his work or, you know, sort of the outcast. And, and Stan was not uh, universally loved in fandom the way he would become over, over the decades. Yeah, and of course, as you know, of course, within certain precincts of fandom and, and, and the internet, if you dare go to those places, you know, there's, there is still that polarization and, and still people who, you know, will not be satisfied you know, with anything short of, you know, photo evidence of, of Stan, uh, you know, drowning puppies. I mean, it just, they, you know, they, there is, um, and look, not everything Stan did was noble or wonderful, but a lot of what he did was very generous of spirit, you know, I, you know, in, in my book, which it's a good book, up here, called The Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stanley. I'm here in Dr. Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum, by the way. I noticed that. I noticed that on our Zoom call. You're in uh, Doctor Strange, saying, uh, and I was just thinking, you know, the guy that brought Spider-Man to the screen, Sam Raimi, is going to be uh, going into the Sanctum. Uh, that's kind of cool to see him back in business with the the Lee Dicko shelf. You know, uh, sure. what is he going to be doing? Actually, I don't. I don't know about Sam this Raimi. Thing. Oh, he's directing the new uh, Doctor Strange film. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Scott Derrick uh, Derrickson, uh, the uh, director of the first one, uh, as uh, Parted ways on this one, and they brought so in Sam Raimi, who, uh, of course, directed Spider-Man, Spider-Man Two, and yeah, Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so he's, he's sort of a Ditko specialist. Uh, he really is. Although Spider-Man Three, he got into Ramita, and, and it didn't necessarily serve him well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, a little rough. Well, Spider-Man Three. That's wow. What? A, yeah. That, uh, that. 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 Yeah. That screenplay could have used another couple of two or three rewrites, I guess. But. Uh, yeah. um, there's a great thing about Sam, real quick, is, you know, that was the first movie set I was ever on, was Spider-Man, back in 2000. Oh, that must have been great. It was amazing. I, and uh, the scene I, I showed up for was uh, Tobey Maguire's in, a, in an alleyway in downtown Los Angeles next to a pizzeria, and he gets his hand bit. And he looks at his hand, and he looks up, and so I'm there for that, like, which is like wow, a wow. signature moment. Uh, and uh, at the time, I remember thinking, God, I think they finally figured out how to do a comic book movie, because... Oh, you yeah. Know, uh, you know, one of the things uh, that people, it's easy to forget now, is that now Marvel is the definition of Hollywood success. It's, a, it's the gold standard, but not so for a long time. I mean, all the way, you know, 
from the debut of Superman 78, the, the DC Comics, of course, film, all the way up uh, through, you know, 2006, 2007, before Iron Man came out. Those are years where DC dominated the, the movie theaters and, and Marvel uh, had, you know, things like Howard the Duck and uh, not Marvel Studios, but Marvel uh, through license, licenses with studios with the Blade films and, and Punisher and a lot of sort of misfires and, and, and uh, unexpected successes. So. And then the X-Men, of course, preceded uh, Spider-Man. The thing about, um, you know, about, uh, about that Spider-Man movie yeah. is that is in, you know, to a degree, it's based on what was supposed to be James Cameron's Spider-Man movie 10 years earlier. Yeah. I gave notes on, 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 uh, on Cameron's treatment 10 years before that. And what happened is Marvel uh, and its parent company, Cadence, they, they had been, they were so sure that nothing would ever happen with these characters beyond like maybe some cartoons and, 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 and some you know, uh, licensed uh, products that they ended up selling all these overlapping rights. So when it's announced that James Cameron's doing a Spider-Man movie, yeah. It suddenly emerged. Everybody owned the same rights, and so it went through ten years of lawsuits, and they ended up losing James Cameron, and luckily got Sam Raimi. But it took you know, so that's the that's what Marvel was like. It was a nickel and dime company that had you know owned by a company called Magazine Management, part of which was putting out knockoff Playboy magazine. So the Hefner comparison uh, comes comes in again. There there were those like you know. Like if Playboy had this veneer of being high class with high production values and a lot of airbrushing and and top writers, well the 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 the, the knockoff Playboys that that the magazine management was putting out were those grody ones that you know kind of kind of made you feel you know like your hands feel uh, gritty after you uh, looked at them and put them on the shelf. That's but, the best case scenario, actually. What? <laughs> I said that's the best case scenario for your hands. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, good point. Um, uh, but you were talking about you know uh, you know people loving and hating Stan. You know, yeah. and a lot of that goes back to his relationship with his main collaborators. Uh, Steve Ditko, with whom he he created uh, Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. Jack Kirby, with whom he created everything else. You know, everything else, yeah. Uh, Fantastic Four, Avengers, Iron Man, Hulk. Um, so, you know, in my book, I, a lot of what my book is about is really the relationship between Stan and Jack and Stan and Steve. Um, and, and to a degree about Stan and his brother, Larry Lieber, which is of course a very complicated relationship. Because I, I mean, my, my kind of uh, working premise is that those guys in their later lives seem to really resent and even hate Stan. In a way you can only resent and hate somebody who you really admired, looked up to and even loved. Yeah. So I mean, I, I kind of see the book you know, of course, there's the love story of Stan and Joan, who were married for close to 70 years. Yeah. Um, but, it, but I think it's really that complicated relationship. Because um, you talk about when Kirby, you know, after, after he felt mistreated at Marvel, went to D.C., where he'd been mistreated before he came back to Marvel in the 50s, yeah. to D.C., and, and, and found that even though they made a big thing about him coming back, eventually... And he wasn't treated that well. And, and in the meantime, 
did a very savage satire of Stan and of Roy Thomas, who was another uh, main editor and writer. Um, he, he did a story where he portrayed Stan, not just in a panel or two, but the whole story as this kind of um, cold-hearted, uh, ruthless, um, cynical, uh, yeah. cynical uh, manipulator named Funky Flashman. Yeah. And yet, and I mean, I don't know a lot of people who after having something that savage on about them would then turn around and welcome Jack back when he wanted to come back in 75. And then not only welcome him back, but but play into, you know, work interference if anybody, you know, the Jack was getting a lot of negative feedback. Uh, he was working in sort of an idiosyncratic manner and people both inside and outside the company didn't like it and Stan really advocated for him and ran interference and said, no, we promised Jack he'd have autonomy. Don't mess with this stuff. You know, it was so these were complicated. And you know, Ditko left in '66 and a half after the first 38 issues of Spider-Man, and then somehow he shows up. You know, many years later, yeah. and I was this I witnessed. You know, he and Stan have a meeting. Stan flies in from the West Coast to meet with Steve, and they have a meeting about a possible new project. And from what I could tell, seemed very happy to see each other. Now, shortly after that is when say when Ditko in earnest started writing these uh, vituperative diatribes uh, uh, against Stan. But, uh, you know, I, and even in those, there was some, I don't know if you call it affection, but at least some, some regard as, as nasty as they could get. So those were, so my book a lot, you know, what I try to do in my book is I put enough there for an audience that's not, that doesn't live and breathe everything about comics. So. I didn't want to get too inside baseball. Yeah. You know, I wanted to put Stan and Marvel uh, in in a historical and a pop culture history context. But you know, I tried to put enough in there that hardcore fans would also find something new or a new way of looking at things. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and congratulations on doing just that because uh, I think you've succeeded. And um, and the Joan and Stan romance. You know, I was one of those people that was lucky enough to see them together and and see what that was like. Uh, and it was like, uh, uh, just like one of those MGM films from the forties or, you know, where, you know, you had the sense that the, they were just gonna sort of spin and dance right off of the, the uh, stage left and just keep doing, just keep going. Uh, just a great romance. Uh, one that really, really was really warming to see, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, especially, you know, I mean, it wasn't without its problems, you know, I mean, they're, uh, but obviously, but you know, she stayed together for seventy years. Yeah, that's uh, uh, yeah, they complemented each other. You know, I think again, I think as although there's this image of Stan as you know a ruthless corporate media mm -hmm. mogul, you know, uh, moving the chess piece. You know, yeah. I I think there was you know, uh, I think he he saw himself as just some lucky guy who needed to be protected, which led, led to problems later on was like protecting himself with maybe not quite the right people. But, you know, my understanding based on, you know, because I did, I did exclusive new interviews with Stan for the book and a ton of other people and just conversations over the years with him and Joan is that anybody who came in and bought Marvel, you know, Marvel sold for the first time in 1968 and then went through a number of owners till now it's owned by Disney, of course. Yeah. 
but almost anybody who bought it, the first thing they do, they'd look at the, you know, the profit and loss sheets and they go, why are we paying this guy, Stan Lee, all this money? Let's get rid of him. And sort of that's when really, and my impression is that it was Joan would bring in these high powered lawyers and say, not so fast, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so I think Stan had, and probably not incorrectly this way. I mean, I've heard stories of, you know, they seem contradictory, but, but they, you know, but again, they're probably not where say Cadence, uh, Cadence Industries, which was let's say, the company that bought Marvel from Martin Goodman. The owner was, was known to be sort of a, a hot-headed, uh, hard driving guy, you know, the chairman of the board. And I've heard two stories. I heard one story, you know, where basically he assures Stan that Stan has a future and they give him a long-term contract and they, you know, and, and they get how, they, they get that he's so important that that's where a lot of the cutting out of say Kirby and Ditko from the Marvel mythos happens where Cadence, you know, helps, they figure, well, Ditko and Kirby have left. We own these intellectual, you know, they fed into this Stanley, a soul creator myth in a way that I don't even think Stan did by the same token. I've heard stories of the same guy, you know, having Stan at a meeting and Stan asks some innocent question and the guy berates him like, you schmuck, don't you ever say anything like that to me again, get the hell out of here. And you think, well, how do those square that they are banking on this guy, but then they treat him like shit. And then I go, oh, right, it's the comic book business. (laughs) Yeah, that's true, that's true. It was amazing with Marvel to see, like, you know, every issue, uh, you know, on that splash page, Stan Lee presents. I mean, he really did have a platform there um, where he was um, more than a, a editor and less than mascot, but something in between. And, and, and certainly the most famous, most famous product of the comic book world that wasn't a character. I mean, you know, uh, you know, he's right up there. I mean, Spider-Man, Superman are more famous, but, you know, he's not too much further down the list. Although I can't, it's, I, I, I'm, you know, better than me. You talk to average folks and they, a lot of them think he was an artist. You know, who was the greatest comic book artist of all time? And, you know, if his family feud, number one answer, Stan Lee, you know, but. Uh, well, not only the number one answer, there's no number two answer. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you no, know, there's, yeah. there's not other Stan Lee and then there's, there's you know. Uh-huh. Uh, well, look, I mean, one of Stan's maybe less admirable uh, uh, traits or habits, you know, people, people will say, you know, I mean, when, when they'll say, oh, well, you know, Kirby and Ditko and other people did in what's called the Marvel method. They did a lot more of the heavy lifting of telling the stories and they didn't get paid. Stan took their money. Well, that's very, you know, that a, they're thinking about like a much more bureaucratized, uh, world and business than the comics was then. But my, you know, what, what, I, what I've found that again, it's not, Stan would much, I, I think Stan, since he controlled or at least was able to bring the case to the publisher, I think he, I think he incorporated that these guys were doing a lot of the plotting and storytelling into their page rates for penciling. What he would not do, what he, and what, uh, what he would not do or was less, willing to do was to give credit you mm-hmm. know he, i mean that that's that's kind of a very 
because most people you would think, well, it's easier to give credit than money, you know, right. and artists are, are often ego driven. So if you say to a guy, I'll give you credit, well, I'm getting the credit. Uh, so Stan, I think, would give them money. Uh, but the closest he came, I guess at a certain point, the comics started saying by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. And it was, and it was a, which I thought it was, it was, I mean, it was, in, you know, it kind of reminds me of what's uh, of like in the 40s, it's, uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, where what they did and the lines and who did what was a little vague. I also thought that was a little unfair to newer readers who would not necessarily understand the backstory of it. So that was the closest, and I guess kind of more generous than a lot of people would have been. Yeah. But, you know, say so you look at comics now, and if somebody, has plotted a story, it'll usually say plot by and then dialogue by and then artwork, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, Stan, I think was, I think he always had an eye out the door. I think he always thought, I, you know, and then history, his history, you know, the history of the business and history of Marvel with ups and downs and every eight or nine years suddenly having to let everybody go and then rebuild, you know, I think he figured, you know, maybe, you know, Marvelous hip now. I'm meeting Federico Fellini. I'm meeting yeah. Alvin Rene. I'm meeting all these, you know, I'm, I, I'm meeting, uh, you know, well, Mario Puzo actually was working there before he wrote The Godfather, right. you know, but I'm meeting all, you know, I'm meeting Kenneth Koch. I'm meeting Tom Wolfe because he's more than once said that, you know, that his main regret was that he didn't go to Hollywood 20 years earlier. Well, this was in 1978. So 20 years earlier would have meant he would have gone to Hollywood before even Fantastic yeah. Four won. So I think he always was sort of trying to bank bank this credit so that he could show up in Hollywood. Uh, like or be a Walt you know, Disney. He wanted to be Walt Disney, not, yeah, not, yeah, not yeah. Uh, whatever you want. Yeah. And then I'll get the context of the literal, if, if you know, I mean, most people know the show Mad Men. Uh -huh. Well, Goodman. Uh, interestingly, although he was notoriously cheap, always wanted to have Marvels and his and his, his and his other offices, you know, his magazine offices on Madison Avenue, you know, in Midtown Manhattan, literally in the same buildings as the Mad Men, you know, the real life Mad Men. So I think that rubbed off on Stan too. I think, you know, I think if Stan hadn't been able to use Marvel to get out to Hollywood, I think his other preference would have been to go into advertising. And, and he's always claimed that he did a lot of advertising, freelancing and radio script. You know, it's hard to tell with some of those claims because, you know, if, if he did ghostwriting work, then by definition, there wouldn't be a record of it. And yet, why would it have to be ghostwriting? So that's, you know, that's sort of another area of research to see whether it's complete uh, bullshit or whether he actually, you know, um, you know, I think some of it's true, but it's hard to really get a handle on what, you know, what, what is or isn't. Sure. Well, there's that P.T. Barnum aspect of Stan, you know, I mean, in so many ways, uh, you know, I think when I was writing about him, I said that he was somewhere halfway between Hefner uh, as a publisher and, and Barnum as uh, a salesman of life, you know. Um, yeah, and he he loved to sell. He, he, he loved, you know, he really got a kick out of advertising. And mm -hmm. writing advertising copy, and if you look at the Marvels, both the superhero comics and the early ones from, you know, from the mid '50s till, you know, the till the '70s, 
they were jammed with 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 copy. I mean, you could have this great, you know, uh, image drawn by Kirby or Ditko or or or, or, or Gil Kane or whoever, you know, um, John Buscema, Gene Cohn. You could have these great, but Stan um, would jam it with this hyperbolic copy, which was often very tongue in cheek, yeah. but its its function. Um, was and this this was a play when I started in the business too. The theory was, uh, and I this and again it must be true of magazines in general because even today so many magazines have tons of cover. It is if someone is spending time reading your cover copy, there's this subconscious emotional connection they make hmm. that well I've spent this much time I may as well buy the magazine. Right. You right. know, um, but th there was definitely a way of, you know, if you, if you have a rack full of kind of garishly colored comic books, how do you get somebody to pay attention? And, and but it did have that P.T. Barnum. Thing. I mean, Stan, you know, sometimes people will say, well, you know, he might uh, not have done, uh, you know, he might not have really done the writing, but he was a great promoter for Marvel and comics and he was a terrific editor. But I think he was a, a much better writer than people, than a lot of people give him credit for. Um, you know, even if the, even if a lot of the plotting was done by the artists, I think, I think there was a way in which he lived in their heads as their editor mm. and, and they, you know, you, you, you hear stories of Kirby drawing at home, drawing what, what to most people look like a great page and saying, you know, Stan, Stan's not going to like this. I'll either I'll throw it away or I'll save it to sell, you know, just on its own, but Stan, and 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 there were times, you know, where Stan did make him having that clout as relative of the owner and art director and editor and writer, Stan could be the auteur. I think if you read, I think like Kirby and Ditko, uh, Stan had a side of him that was still that kind of um, hard luck, frightened, poor kid from Washington Heights and the Bronx, and 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 I think. Uh, I think there was a depressive side to him that enabled him, you know, I mean, you, re you read those characters like The Thing and Spider-Man. Sure. There was a level of introspection. You know, it started a little bit before Marvel with uh, some of the more psychologically oriented stories that Jerry Siegel and the other writers were doing for Superman in the late 50s. Uh -huh. Suddenly, after 20 years, Superman remembered he was the sole survivor of a dead planet, you know, yeah. for a long time, Superman never thought about that, you yeah, know, yeah. you know, but Stan took, it, Stan took it to this next notch, and I, and I think you have to really credit him, you know, I don't think that was something, look, Kirby and Simon did do romance comics, so they, they understood the soap opera aspect, and obviously John Romita came from, from doing soap opera comics. Mm -hmm. But I think Stan was tuned in to to that those emotions and sensibilities. You know, I, I think he was inspired to do his best work by those artists. Mm. You know, but I I I I feel he often gets shortchanged as a writer. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And some of the characters, I mean, you know, you look at like you know Gwen Stacy and you know the things the, the pathos that he incorporated, right. Silver Surfer, and uh, you know. Uh, he absolutely had a, a, a storytelling sense and, and an emotional uh, radar. You know, he had a real, he understood how to move people. 
in, in, in comics. And then that hadn't been done consistently in a way that Marvel did, um, you know, there in the 60s. That run that they had, you know, when you were talking about Funky Flashman, I was thinking, like, what, what, what's a comparison that, uh, to that? And I, I thought of uh, John Lennon, you know, how do you sleep at night with Paul McCartney <laughs> uh, after the, the split of Lennon-McCartney? And that got me thinking about, you know, you, who, has there ever been a more prolific run uh, than Marvel had in the 60s? And if there was, it, was it Lennon-McCartney? I mean, Lennon-McCartney and, and Lee and Kirby, month by month, you know, if, if you look at what they did between, say, well, with the Beatles, I guess, you know, probably beginning of 63 or, you know, 62 and uh, Kirby and, and Lee, you know, uh, 1960 with the, uh, the Fantastic Four up through, you know, by the end of the decade, um, you know, that's a re pretty remarkable. I mean, the Beatles were done by 69 and, and then when did Jack and, and uh, Stan stop doing Fantastic Four? Jack left and Jack left in early seventy. Okay, so I mean, month by Pretty month, possible, I mean, yeah. It's 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 like uh, they're like the Yankees, uh, uh, murderers row, like as as far as just the uh, unrelenting. Uh, and and there was a lot of similarities too. Like I could write a whole essay that you know, uh, Silver Surfer is the Eleanor Rigby of the Marvel universe. <laughs> oh, look at only look. Oh, look at all, all the lonely spacefaring. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Spacefaring uh, uh, hamlets, where do they go? Um, you know, that's in many ways that that holds up because Lennon and McCartney didn't always get along, but there was always a connection. And, and obviously Stan and Jack didn't always get along, but there was something about them together uh, Fantastic Four lasted a hundred over a hundred issues with the two of them. Amazing, right? And even when you know, I mean, at, the, at I think at a certain point, Kirby was on almost automatic pilot. You know, if you look, if you look at the last whatever 20, 25 issues, you can see Kirby had pretty much promised he wasn't going to give any more new characters to Marvel, and sudden, you know, the size of the art board changed, which also the art boards got smaller, so it was harder to put in that many panels. But you know, even then. It's pretty seamless, uh, you know. I, I don't. I don't think most readers would would have noticed it. But yeah, it, it, that phenomenon. The other, you know, I'm a big Dylan fan, and and mm -hmm. and the other thing, sort of the similarity I've noticed between Stan and Dylan, is that there's always people trying to claim that both of them are not authentic and not legitimate. That somehow they got where they are by copying other people's work or imitating other perform. You know, and it's like, you know, you can have that criticism, but if somebody has a career that lasts like more than 50 years, right. maybe there's something to it than just being somebody who like copies other work, other people's work or lives on other people's reputations, yeah. you know? Uh, yeah, but th yeah, those those eight, 10 years of the of the first Marvel comics. And, and you know, it's, again, if you look back at this stuff, they put out, you know, they, they were limited for new, for reasons that have to go back to to, to the to an implosion that they had in the 50s. Right. They were limited to say eight to 10 comics uh, a month, which is why a lot of those comics were called split books. You have two characters uh -huh. sharing uh, a, a title. And you know, not everything Marvel put out every month was great. And that's the stuff we forget, you know, a lot of those say, 
uh, Human Torch, solo stories. The Hulk seemed to have a different artist every month. And he got canceled, right? I mean, you know, Hulk. Canceled, but I mean, once he came back in those backups, my my kind of my my uh, you know my my smart ass you know impression of what went on it would be like. You know, it would be five o'clock on Friday at the Marvel offices. Well, have a good weekend, Stan. Have a good weekend at Flow. Okay, everybody, you all see. Oh, crap, we forgot the Hulk again. Everybody come back. We got to put together a Hulk story, you know. We'll take long. It'd be whoever. I mean, they just have a different art team every, <laughs> every. Um, but, they, you know, there was a fair amount of stuff they put out that was forgettable, you know. But that's, that's sort of the bargain. That's a pop culture bargain, right? You don't expect every everything that's on Netflix to be great or everything that, that, that uh, every time you go to the movie theater, but yeah. you know, your bargain is, well, okay, you know, uh, next time will be better. And this was certainly professionally done. And I got some bang for my, for my entertainment buck, you know? And so, yeah. yes, of course, we remember the Galactus trilogy oh, yeah. and, okay. and, 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 and uh, you know, and, and the master planner saga. We don't so much remember the bouncing ball of doom Paste pot Pete. Paste pot Pete, right? <laughs> yeah, there's there's some uh, some 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 stuff that uh, just got through. Um, he, one of the things is that Stan and Jack together, uh, like Len McCartney, there you know there was an alchemy there that um, you know the I my favorite thing about summing up the Beatles is like uh, you know Paul comes in with a song, it's getting better all the time, and John goes, yeah. It can't get much worse, and <laughs> that sort of the the yin and yang of it, um, and that they come at it differently, but where they meet in the middle makes them both better, uh, or makes the work uh, more elevated. And and I felt that way about Jack and Stan. Like you know, Jack's Jack without Stan, it could get really really dense and and kind of uh, cosmic, but uh, it would lose that sort of uh, instant appeal of the patter and. Um, you know, that sort of voice of the reader that Stan had and Stan without Jack um, really did lack that sort of, well, it never reached the same cosmic heights. I mean, you know, Jack's imagination, you know, is unrivaled uh, in, in popular culture. Um, it's sort of fascinating to see and, 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 and you know, those, those relationships can't last long, apparently. Uh, but when they do, it really is sort of an alchemy, don't you think? Yeah, and 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 right. The 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 whole is greater than the sum of the parts. They they, you know, and and it doesn't mean they have to like each other all the time. You know, sometimes they could hate each other. And and I mean that the I think the last year or two of Spider Man, Ditko and and Lee were literally not speaking. Sal Brodsky, who was the production manager and an artist in his own right, you know, uh, and a writer, you know, was the intermediary. Right. Um, yeah, or or people would talk, you know, say Gil Kane would talk about how you know Kirby would come in once a week to bring in pages, and uh, they go out to lunch afterwards, you know, but not with Stan. It would be with a bunch of the other artists, and Kirby would just be seething about Stan. Yeah. But Gil Kane's theory was that anger fueled, you know, I mean, it couldn't last forever, but it fueled uh, this amazing work that yeah. they that was greater than anything they could have done separately. Uh, you know what kind of took me uh, uh, by surprise when I read it, uh, it made sense after I thought about it, but it just, uh, it, it kind of is counterintuitive, I suppose. I grew up reading comics, uh, Marvel since like 76, 75, so somewhere in there. And uh, but when I saw that, you know, Stan had written more, like if you look, what comic book did Stan write the most issues of? You know, it's not Fantastic Four. 
you know, it's it's like uh, I think Rawhide Kid or or, or Two Gun Kid or Millie yeah. the Model or Model. Yeah, Stan loved to write humor. Uh huh. I mean, it's very it's very funny because when people say to me, "What what was your favorite first Marvel comic?" The easy answer is, "Well, Fantastic Four number four. That's the first. Somebody told me about this new comic, and I went to the candy store in Manhattan, and 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 there was, you know, and I, and I bought it. But really." I'd been reading Millie the Model in the barber shop, you know. In, the, in those days, you know, barbers, you know, would have comics so the kids wouldn't squirm around so much while they were getting haircuts. And and I guess the only I guess the only comics that other kids would give away to the barber would be like, but Millie the Model was really witty and clever, uh, had a lot of that self awareness. Stan and and the artist, the Stan Goldberg, would appear in the stories. So Stan wrote a lot of humor. I think it was I think it was easier. Uh, you know, he found plotting them and scripting them. He liked doing comedy. I, I mean, I think A, I think it played to his strengths. B, I think he could write it faster than you could melodrama so he could make his page rate. You know, he got paid separately for writing the stories. There were Marvel, you know, especially up until that mid fifties was, you know, the myth of Marvel is a little engine that could and it had these eight titles and they grew to be what they are today. There was a long period in the 30s, 40s, 50s where they, by volume, put out more comics than anybody. They were putting out 70, 80 titles a month. Oh wow! And most of them were forgettable, and they they didn't even have a brand. It wasn't even you know maybe they had a little MC that might have stood for Marvel Comics. Or it was kind of these anonymous, almost generic comics, where which had fantastic artists, the Jerry Robbins and all these guys. Al Jaffe of Mad Magazine worked for Stan for 10 years. And and so Stan, I think, enjoyed doing those short humor or cowboy stories or horror stories. You know, there were five pages. He could, you know, make some extra money and not, you know, there was no such thing as continuity. Um, so that seemed to suit him. I think in the 40s, he did his share of writing superhero stories of Captain America and, you know, and, and uh, the Destroyer and Jack Frost. He wrote, a, but I think the thing that, was easiest and and he could just get through fastest was that that lighter stuff but that served him well you know when because if you look at what marvel is it's it's a hybrid you know of soap opera light comedy um and 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 and, and even cowboy action you know and, and he managed to really uh, uh put all that together in in a way that was more sophisticated than what anybody at, 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 at DC or anywhere else was doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You really pulled on everything from like Flash Gordon to the soap oh, yeah. operas and, and put it all together. And, it, you know, it's kind of a crazy quilt when you look at it. Like, you know, it makes it, it just the way Kirby and, and Jack and I mean, excuse me, the way Jack and Stan and and, and their you know cohorts did it, it, it seemed a nor normal at the time. But you have, you know, Aliens and uh, robots and and Dracula and Hercules and Thor and you know like we got Norse gods and we got uh, here to just throw and it's just this crazy quilt of you know you would read these epics and you're like why are these people together like these are a really strange group of people like you know the Avengers if you really think about it um, yeah, uh, but he did manage to bring it down to that kind of smart ass banter that they had. And then that say, you know, one of my favorite things is um, is that Thor, that whole Thor storyline, where for years, 
Gore was trying to get uh, Odin to allow him to marry Jane Foster, the mortal nurse of his secret identity, Don Blake. Yeah. And Odin, you know, it's the thing, you know, one of my, you know, I often write a lot about the Jewish origins uh-huh. of comics and superheroes. And you, and you look at it and, and I can't imagine it was conscious, but this was a subplot for years Oh, Father Odin, I want to marry the mortal. No, it is forbid. And it sounds so much like, uh, you know, a modern American-born Jewish kid trying to get sure. his father's blessing to marry a Gentile woman. Sure. And then ultimately, of course, the, the symbolic punchline is that Odin finally goes, oh, yeah, enough already. Bring her, you know, bring her to Asgard. We'll give her superpowers. So she converts. Yeah. And it, it turns out to be a disaster. Yeah. So then Odin, you know, kind of benevolently sends her back to Earth and he introduces Thor to a nice Asgardian girl named Sif, you know. Yeah. But I mean, you, I mean, here are Stan and Jack, who are the first generation American-born children of Jewish immigrant parents. Yeah. And sort of Kirby married the nice Jewish girl next door in Brooklyn. Yeah. And Stan married the glamorous uh, uh, British uh, Presbyterian model you know and it seemed to work for both of them they both had long happy marriages but i mean when when i when i look at stories uh, like that that are powerful even if you don't read this subtext in and of course at age 10 i wasn't reading that subtext in right wasn't until decades later but there there was uh, something more that they you know i guess because stan was the editor art director writer and relative of the owner could kind of allow or even, you know, infuse. put the stuff in where it couldn't appear in other comics. Yeah, yeah, it was infused in there. Like, a, you know, maybe because they were doing so much too, is like you, you don't right. filter yourself out. You know, just, you just can't help it. it kind of um, uh, just comes out on the page. Um, you know, I, I, you knew Stan much better than I did, uh, but uh, uh, I, I have to, ask you if you had the same reaction I had upon his death, which is as much as I uh, love the guy and as much as I uh, respect him and, and, and am fascinated by his life, just as you are, I was shocked by the amount of outpouring around the world. Like, it, I think he came to symbolize something um, to people and the movie cameos, of course, a huge, yeah. huge, huge part of that. Uh, and the years of uh, banging the drum for uh, his own name and, and uh, being the platform but uh, he really did, really connected with people in a way uh, that was, it was very profound when, when he passed away. It, it really struck me. I, was, I, I hadn't really anticipated that. You know, I mean, a lot of it had to do with the cameos, of course, and his, and his, and his never-ending appearances. Animation. And, you know, that, I mean, he loved, you know, look, I think, I think various things were happening with Stan's money. Oh, sure. Yeah. That we still don't know what, you know. I mean, yeah. look, Stanley generated a lot of money. If you ever went to some at a convention and saw all the cash changing hands, where that money went is harder to figure out. Yeah. You know? well, certainly up front. But I mean, you know, and, 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 and this, this became one of the difficult things about his later life because it's not only the people loved seeing him, but I think it really, I mean, I don't think, I know I saw it happen you know, where I do, there was one particular panel, 
I did with him uh, in Sacramento. I was, I was working with the Wizard World convention chain and Stan was a regular and I was his regular moderator okay. at those shows. And we did one, one show where he was like, he missed, he missed, he was supposed to be there on Saturday and he didn't show up because he has, he had a bad reaction to a flu shot. Mm. But still get your COVID shots, people. Yes, exactly. Um, he had, uh, he had a bad reaction to a flu shot and, and, and he came, the company sent a private plane for him. And I could see the next day, you know, as we were waiting to go on, he was literally holding onto the banister of the stage. He could barely stand up. And I thought, well, this is going to be, so, you know, the, the president of the company gets up and he says, you know, Stan and Danny are only going to do a 20 minute panel instead of the usual 45 because Stan's having this reaction. Hope you understand, you know, he didn't want to let you down. So he showed up and, you know, so we, we go up on stage and you could see right, you know, so we're talking and, you know, you know, Q and A mostly, you know, then a lot of questions from the audience and every five minutes, somebody's flashing me a sign. We have 15 minutes left, 10 minutes, five minutes. And, uh, you know, you know, it's over, you know, and I, and I say, uh, uh, Stan, you know, as John explained to everybody, you're, you're not feeling well. So we're doing a, only a 20 minute panel. Anything you want to say to the folks before we, uh, before we leave? And Stan looks at me and he says, is God talking to you? Did he say we have to stop? I feel great. Let's keep going. Okay. Everybody backstage is flashing me signals. I have no idea what they mean or what they want. Yeah. Uh, but clearly, you know, and we went on for about another 10 minutes, so I finally was able to drag him off the stage. But I mean, that energized, and I've seen that happen with other elderly or ill people where they look like they're going to drop dead and then they get up on stage. Yeah. So uh, again, because I was doing those with him and I was writing the book, people people would, would often say to me, is there elder abuse going on? Yeah. And, and, and certainly in the, specifically of him being dragged to all these conventions, you know, where some, at some panels, he would literally fall asleep on, you know, um, and I said, look, you know, from what you know of Stan Lee, do you think he'd rather die at home alone in bed or drop dead in front of 10,000 people loving him at a convention? Which is not to say there wasn't elder abuse going on at a certain point, but, I, but at least as far as going on the panels, like you could just see and, and he would be very uh, uh, funny and appropriate. And, he, and a lot of, you know, some of his answers were canned once he said a thousand times, but a lot of what he would answer, even if it was a question he'd heard a thousand times, would be some very interesting memory or, or observation. Absolutely. So uh, it, it, it was, uh, you know, those last years were, were tricky, but so the outpouring, so I, so I think there were, you know, in a way, it's partly what was responsible. Look, years and years and years. That's sort of one of the, you know, small T tragedies of Stan's life was that he spent so much time in Hollywood trying to sell the Marvel characters. And it really took a couple of decades for a couple of generations of executives to retire and die, you know, yeah. before yeah. new younger people finally saw the potential of the comics movies as not satire. Right. You know? So I think it I, I I I think there might have been something similar with that generations of actors and writers and you know of people we say oh, that outpouring. I think people he was such a part of people's childhoods and 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 their pop culture memories and their own careers. I mean I, I could see it again at these conventions. 
Yeah. Now they'd open it up to Q and A. And while there would certainly be, you know, your stereotypical kind of uh, comic fans, there would also be a lot of children yeah. who obviously knew nothing of, of the early Marvels. But there was something, you know, maybe they came with their father or, or, or their grandmother or some, you know, somebody was, was pushing them up to ask. And uh, so it was generational. And he treated, of course, he treated anybody who asked the question with the same, uh, you know, amount of, of, of actual respect and took their question seriously. Or if it was, if it gave an opportunity to be funny, he would take that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and God was talking to him, I guess, finally. Uh, he was a guy that, you know, he enjoyed being on stage for sure. And, and, the, and the stage enjoyed him, you know. Well, his first, I think his, probably his first ambition would have been to be an actor, you know. He did He did a lot of that, you know. Uh, I think he started out in acting, you know, at least uh, based on the interview I did with him, or the interviews I did with him and that other people have done. Uh, usually there was a girl involved. There was some girl he liked who was in an acting club, so he joined that acting club. But I think he also very much enjoyed uh, acting. And, and any stories you hear from from friends of his, you know, if you went over to his house or if he came over to your house, whether it was your house or their house, it was the Stan and Joan show. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I remember the first time I met him, um, I was I was as a fan, not a journalist, and uh, waited in line and got him to sign a copy of my red hardcover Best of Marvel Comics collection from the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I said, you know, uh, it's an honor to meet you. You were my first favorite writer. You know, well, it's either you or Dr. Seuss. And <laughs> he looked at me and he goes, I can handle that. That's pretty good. You know, that's. <laughs> You know, and I wonder for how many people, if, if, uh, you know, that's the case, that he would be the first writer that they knew by name uh, in their life. So. Yeah, 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 definitely, you know. For sure. Well, it's uh, it was a marvelous life he had, and, and that's the name of the book. Danny Fingeroff, thank you so much. Uh, I'll I just have to take this time to show the cover one more time. Sure. Uh, I have to be careful here in my fake Doctor Strange background. It's, this is the hardcover. It's also out in paperback. It's out in, the, out in large print. And, and? If, and if you've made it through all this time hearing my voice, right. imagine 14 hours of me doing the audio book because I did. So <laughs> I, you know, which is a good way to, you know, when you do an audio book, I don't know if you've ever done one. It's a good way to, to learn how, just how many words that you use every day that you don't actually know how to pronounce. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, but so there's the audio book, which people, uh, that's as big a thing now as print books. So, and, and it's got like, it's got a lot of stuff about Stan, uh, whether you're a super duper, know every detail of, of comic history or whether you're just a little more casual. I tried to make it so be accessible to everybody. Absolutely. It's from St. Martin's Press and it's a great book. And, and uh, I would like to have that on audio. I should check that out. Uh, I think that sounds really pretty fun, but uh... Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and, and uh, uh, I hope you'll join us again sometime. I'd love to continue this conversation. I could talk to you for, for all day. <laughs> okay, yeah, anytime. Let me know. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. All right, take care. Everybody thank stay you. well. Cheers. All right, well, that was a really interesting interview. I didn't know nearly that much about Stan Lee. Really, I just kind of knew the name and, like, the cursory history of it, you know? Yeah, and that persona, right? You know, the exactly. face and the smile and the... Excelsior, you know, uh, uh, he like a uh, like I mentioned to Danny, you know, he really had a lot of PT Barnum in him, this this sort of salesman and the 
showman and, and sort of the sense of how to please a crowd. Um, you know, Marvel had their own con, their own convention uh, in the 70s uh, in, uh, in New York in the really? early 70s. And it didn't last long, but it's, uh, you know, you think, I think back about that and he must have been just so excited about that because it's just his ability to reach an audience. Uh, he just loves it. And, uh, he, and uh, it was really cool to get to know him a little bit. You know, I, I interviewed Stan probably, you know, um, in person, you know, maybe a dozen times. Um, went to his home, I went to his office, and I did a TV show with him once where I interviewed him on, on um, a TV special and took questions from uh, viewers and such. Um, and I'd say, with the exception of maybe three of those times, every single time uh, I had to introduce myself. He had no idea who I was. So like, <laughs> like it, it's one of those things like people are like, what's it like to get to know Stan Lee? I said, well, it's great, but it'd be great if Stan got to know me. Like, cause I, like I'm apparently making no impression on the man at all. Like, <laughs> like it's, uh, I had to introduce myself to him like many times, but the great thing is he was enthusiastic to meet me over and over and over. So that- That's good. That's, I feel like you just meet so many people. It'd be hard to keep track of everybody, you know, especially like, I don't know, oh. interviews and stuff. Exactly. I mean, this is a man that has met so many people. And then a lot of times when I would talk to him stuff, it would be like at San Diego Comic-Con or at the middle of, you know, a premiere or something. So, you know, it's, uh, I, 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 if I took it personally, I wouldn't probably mention it. <laughs> so I don't take it personally. Uh, just the opposite. Actually, I find it kind of charming. Um, and then I got to tell him probably on six different occasions, I said, well, you know, Stan, you're my first favorite writer. You're the first writer whose name I knew after Dr. Seuss, I think. And <laughs> you're my first favorite writer and he's like wow that's great pal and uh, he's like uh, uh i said you know i became a, a writer because of you and, and he's like well i hear that a lot thank you and that means a lot to me it was very nice way he'd always say it there's one time i interviewed uh ed asner the actor who played uh you know lou grant on television for many years and people also know from mary mary tyler moore show and and more recently things like uh, up he was the voice of the main character in Up. Um, I, I mentioned to him, you know, I, I said this to him on stage at a, a Q&A in Santa Monica, uh, a screening of Up, in fact. Um, and I said to the audience about 300, 400 people, you know, before we start, I just want to say, Mr. Asner, you know, like, you're one of the reasons I became a stop. He's like, stop. It's not my fucking fault. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's like, I don't want to hear this. I get this from everybody, all you writers my fault you became a journalist i i'm not you, you, just just skip that part I'm like okay <laughs> so it was pretty funny and he had the bottle cap button on from up and everything oh yeah and i'm like wow you you can't wow okay uh fun, fun fact about up that uh character was based on a, a professor at the college i went to oh no kidding yeah it was texas a&m a lot of the pixar uh animators come out of a&m they have, they have a really yeah. good visualization department yeah and uh That's like awesome. sully uh from monsters inc is named after like a statue on campus oh no kidding oh that's fun <laughs> yeah i like stuff like that there, there's a at cal arts there was one class that um uh i think it had tim burton john lasseter and um brad bird all had mm -hmm. one class together oh wow and i was like wow just think of the box office of that that class, <laughs> that yeah. class is on collected box office. It's pretty <laughs> impressive. Uh, I, I, I hope that's accurate. I, I remember uh, Tim Burton telling me that once, but I, I'm not sure if I. 
if Tim Burton said it, I'm sure it's true. We'll believe him. No, it's, it's I'm not, sure it's true. I just don't know if I remembered it right. I'm just hoping oh. I remember it right. That's the <laughs> that's the thing. But um, yeah, it was really good talking to Danny. He seems like a really nice guy. I really like that radiator of his too. Like you know, because uh, we're talking about New York and and uh, I love that the tapping of the radiator in the background. It made me yearn to be in Gotham until I then I thought about the snow. <laughs> and the yeah. villain problem yeah yeah so i don't know me and snow shovels we don't get along i'm born in miami yeah. live in la you know i'm not your that. guy when it comes to snow shovels one thing i was thinking of uh during this interview was how so this book had just come out about stan lee and his impact on marvel do you think years from now they might have a similar thing on like kevin feige because like he oh, was brought it to like the public the mainstream big public attention with all the movies you know Absolutely. You know, I, I think Kevin's already, he's, Kevin's, um, because of the way that he's handled Comic-Con, you know, and how he's been the point guy there, uh, and in a really savvy way, uh, been the point guy, like not just to, to, to promote himself, far from it. Uh, he's allowed people to see how passionate he is about it and how connected he is and how rooted is he is and so he's really really well respected um and you know you think about um fans comic-con fans uh marvel fans movie fans you ask them how many movie executives can you name there's not a whole lot i mean you know kathleen kennedy kevin feige you know and then yeah. they're scratching their head you know and 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 appropriately i mean people you know, I don't know that they need to know who movie executives are really, you know, like, uh, I, I don't know that those people should be coming as famous as say Harvey Weinstein, like, because look at the reason he got so famous was because he was such a tyrant. And then yeah. later he became infamous for other reasons, you know. Um, but Kevin, I, I, I think he's already reached a level of, uh, 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 you know, recognition and appreciation that few people in his line of work would ever get. That said, he'll never get what Stan had and that has yeah. and that's not a slight to Kevin it's actually just a nod to the way that things have changed it's yeah. because there's you know Stan Lee had his name on every single Marvel comic book that was published from this <laughs> from like 63 up until I mean they were in the even after he left the company in the in the 80s it still said Stan Lee presents on the top of every Marvel comic book on the first page you know mm -hmm. um so you know Kevin doesn't have that kind of uh, drum banging his uh, there's no drum banging for his name in that way and and also I don't think he'd be comfortable with it you know yeah. Stan was very comfortable with let me tell you about the living legend that's me you know like you know like, and Kevin could never do that would never do that it's not who he is he he's much more of a custodian in service of uh, this archive but uh, I'll tell you they they really liked each other uh, I talked to Kevin um, the day after Stan died uh, I talked to Kevin. I did an interview with him uh, that was published on Deadline, and um, he, he was very, very somber. And you know, I mean, Stan had a long life, and and everybody prepared in some different ways for you know the inevitability of it. But he, you know, he was really kind of hushed by the whole thing, and and really, really respectful. And and he talked about how much Stan meant to him, and and um, we had a great conversation that day. And both of us were, you know, I think struggling with the responsibility of knowing that we in our different ways he in a much bigger way in a much more substantial way uh the two of us were having to deal with the responsibility of communicating that life 
to people like he and that's a hell of a life you know like stanley's life it was uh, just like the title of this book you know it's a marvelous life and it's also jam-packed with twists and turns and and uh, subplots and controversies and mm-hmm. tri- triumphs and and setbacks and um it's intimidating to to try to uh get your arms around it uh, rather you're uh, the journalist who's writing one of the obituaries for him or one of the stories for him, or you're the guy, uh, Kevin, who has the singular job of being the, the most prominent, you know, custodian of the Marvel Universe. So um, but I really, really, I can tell you this, I also really, really liked both of them and like Kevin quite a lot. I think Kevin mm-hmm. Feige and Stan Lee are really, really terrific people. They could hardly be more different. And if they were in a room together, uh, Kevin might get a word in. <laughs> But uh, they would both be welcome in any room that uh, they walked into. So they're, they're good guys. Well, I look forward to the inevitable biopic. Yeah, you know, there's talk. You know, there's been talk of that through the years. I, uh, you know, Robert Downey Jr. has mentioned that he thought he would play. Stan- he'd be, he was interested in the role of Stanley. Uh, interestingly, he was also uh, uh, had long discussed uh, Hugh Hefner. So it's kind of interesting that he hmm. was interested in playing these two guys that, you know, to me, I see a lot of. Um, you know, overlap between them. And, and I, I interviewed uh, half like four or five times, twice at the Playboy Mansion. And, and once I interviewed him on stage with Ray Bradbury, uh, the really? author. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like kind of a strange, you know, tandem uh, at first, you know, uh, until you, you go back and look at the first issue of Playboy, which I have done many times. <laughs> uh, if, if you go back and look at the first issue of Playboy, which had Marilyn Monroe on the cover, you know, one of the things that was in that issue was uh, an excerpt from an upcoming book called Fahrenheit 451. And, uh, and Hef had, if there was anybody that uh, was interested in freedom of speech and uh, was willing to champion a complicated piece of art about censorship and government's uh, regulation over speech, Hugh Hefner, I mean, what a smart and savvy way to plant a flag with that first issue that said that this is more, this isn't just about naked women. There's, uh, there's naked women and first amendment. So, um, uh, I think it's interesting doubting want to play both. I've always thought that, that there's a really cool stage play to be made, um, about Stanley and Jack Kirby, you know, like, yeah. like I, I think it'd be, if you did like a three act play, like the first act is they meet, you know, because you got to think when they met, Stanley's like 17 years old. Jack's already kind of famous. He's already drawn Captain America, um, and not famous, but I mean, he's 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 older and successful, and he's a, a strong personality. And uh, and Stan's getting the sandwiches. That's his job. Yeah. So he's the publisher's cousin, uh, you know, nephew or one one or the other. And um, uh, Martin Goodman, and he he was also he would erase the pencil off the inked pages and make sure the ink pots were filled. I mean, it was not glamour work. So you think of what the relationship with them was then. And then in the 60s, they create this Marvel universe and and Stan becomes the household name and Jack doesn't and that sends Jack packing. And then, you know, the the failed reunion when he was coming back. Um, And there was a a moment in San Diego that uh, people have told me about like the last time maybe that Stan and Jack um, were in the same room, probably uh, talking, and uh, uh, Stan was trying to, you know, uh, co- 
you know, tempts uh, Jack back and Roz Kirby, Jack's wife, walked in and saw the two of them talking and not over my dead body and just grabbed Jack and just pulled him out of the room. And that was the end of that. Oh, wow. Um, you know, they both have very strong women in their lives, you know, and, and very long marriages and, and uh, marriages that endured a lot of things. Um, and uh, uh, it, that's an interesting dynamic to think about. You know, I, I, I'd like to see a play like that. So uh, if somebody wants to write it, I'll go see it. Or if somebody <laughs> wants to make it, I'll write it. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, and then so for the essential shelf today, uh, you know, we uh, do this thing every week, right, where we pick a, a book, a graphic novel, uh, and uh, celebrate it and add it to our essential shelf, suggesting to you, the listener, that uh, if you're new to comics or maybe uh, new to a particular comic book title that we mentioned, that this be one that you can get with confidence and add to your shelf because it is indeed essential. Um, I'm sensing it's going to be a Marvel comic. Am I correct? Yes, you have you know, the the force is strong within you. Uh, I am definitely going in the direction of the House of Ideas, the Marvel, the Mighty Marvel Marching Society. All these things that Stan came up with in the, the 60s, Mighty Marvel Marching Society, FOOM, which stands for Friends of Old Marvel, and it was the like the fan publication. Uh, his his soapbox, Stan soapbox. I, like I mentioned, I thought it was like a first draft of social media. The guy created, you know, uh, there was a you weren't just a passive reader you were a part of the marvel universe when you read marvel comics and stan was the uh the guy at the head of the uh, he's the guy in uh you know in the three ring circus you know leading the way the ringleader um yeah so this week the essential shelf one of my favorite books uh is uh, uh silver surfer parable uh and that was published in the 80s and it's uh originally it was it came out as uh in comic book form regular you know, like the spinner rack, the brochure comics, as I like to call them. Um, it came out in that form. Uh, it was a, a two-issue story, and it was written by Stan Lee, and it teamed Stan Lee up with Mobius, uh, who is the amazing French artist who's uh, also passed away, um, but who came to rise in the 70s uh, in France uh, with Metal Hurlant and its American... Um, counterpart, uh, Heavy Metal Magazine, which uh, people who listen to the show will know is a uh, partner in this po uh, this podcast. And uh, Mobius is a, you know, Titan figure. He was, you know, an artist of great grace um, and, and vision and uh, somebody that a lot of people really, really respect. And I consider it to be like, you know, if there was a Mount Rushmore of comic book artists, uh, Mobius would be one of the four faces. Jack Kirby would be one of the four faces. Anyway, so Parable, it's uh, it teams Stan Lee up with uh, Mobius, and it came out um, in the '80s. You know, Stan had, had sort of pulled away from uh, Marvel Comics day to day publishing by this point. Uh, he was doing. Uh, he was in Hollywood. He was trying to pursue the, the great lure of making movies for Marvel. Uh, it wasn't going that great. You know, it got off to a rough start with Howard the Duck. Uh, he was also interested in animation. Uh, he's doing a lot of TV animation stuff. But he did write this book uh, and uh, with Mobius, and it's, it's a very uh, philosophical kind of, it's like the French film version of a Stan Lee comic book. It's uh, a little more reflective than um, his earlier stuff. So this book came out in the 1980s, again, Silver Surfer Parable, and the, uh, the artwork made it jump off 
the shelf for me when I first saw it as a kid and uh, uh, I was a teenager and, and you know, Mobius's art so, so different than say Jack Kirby, which, you know, Kirby's art can almost be grotesque in high energy. Um, it looks like it's jumping off the page, it's kinetic. Mobius is by comparison, very, very graceful. It looks stately, it looks, um, it looks as if it's frozen in time. Uh, and even when it has high energy explosions, it still has a, sort of a gentleness. Um, so if you take that, uh, that art style and then Stan Lee's kind of overwrought, and I don't mean that as a, a pejorative, overwrought uh, um, melodramatic uh, story, uh, the Silver Surfer being one of the, you know, sort of uh, more emotional characters in the, in the Marvel Universe, I think, more emotionally rendered characters. Uh, it was a really interesting and offbeat uh, comic book. And, and I remember when the second one came out, I just wish there was more. I was, it was one of those that I thought it was so cool. Um, and uh, it's uh, one that uh, you can get in several different formats. It's uh, been published, I get, as I said, you can get the original comic books if you can track them down and find them. Um, but it's also uh, was collected into a hardcover and softcover versions on several occasions and it's included in some collections but uh, there was a really nice hardcover version that uh, was released uh, in um, 2012 uh, in the summer of 2012 and uh, that's the one that I have it's got a really cool black cover with uh, uh, Mobius's Silver Surfer sort of suspended in the darkness seeking out uh, the bright beacon of humanity in a, a dim dark universe. Oh, Silver Surfer, the, the owner Rigby of the Marvel Universe. So sad. It's okay. Don't cry. Um, here, I'm going to read the synopsis real quick for the story. Galactus has converted humanity into his followers, and he's leading them to their doom. The planet-devouring demigod has one challenger, the hero he himself trapped on Earth, the Silver Surfer. It's a war for Earth's worship, but how much will be left when it's over? Plus, the Silver Surfer must save his world and ours from the planet-sized peril posed by the enslavers with guest appearances by the Hulk, Spider-Man, Wolverine, and more. Um, so that's the, uh, the Amazon uh, boilerplate description of it, but it's called Silver Surfer Parable. It's really lovely. Uh, it's a quick read and um, it's, uh, it'll put two comic book legends on your shelf in one slender high class package. So that's this week's Essential Shelf. Cool to check that out. I don't really know much about the Silver Surfer character, so that sounds really interesting to me. Yeah, I love the Silver Surfer. He's one of my favorites. Uh, I actually, I remember when I was in college, I decided I was going to name my first child after him. Uh, <laughs> no, not Silver. I was going to name uh, the Silver Surfer's uh, birth name is Norin Rad, uh, which is an awesome, radical name for a guy that rides a surfboard through space. Uh, but I, I was going to go with Norin. And then someone pointed out to me that Norin rhymes with boring, boring. And if you name a kid something that rhymes with boring, it's not going to go well. Well, that makes sense, I guess. But unless you got anything else, that about does it for this week. Yeah, no, and we're good. I, uh, I really enjoyed talking to Danny, and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed listening, and we'll be back next week. See you next time. Thanks again. Thank you.